Hey, I am your host, Veronica Castellanos, and every Monday, I hope you can tune in because I'll be dropping new episodes with the Momster Podcast. Motherhood can be one of the trickiest things to maneuver through emotionally, physically, spiritually, and on my episodes, I'm going to talk about all the things, the good, the bad, the ugly, and joyful moments as well. So tune in every Monday, the Momster Podcast, which is part of the Amplify Her Media Network. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Amplify Her podcast. I am your host, Christina Singh, and the Amplify Her podcast is all about amplifying and uplifting women's voices and stories. I am so thrilled that you're here listening to this show. This is a very special episode and a really beautiful episode with Lily and Kenchor. I met Lily through past guest of the show, Kitty Gonzalez, which we talk about a bit in this episode. But the reason I feel like this episode is just so important is because Lily talks about so many um, so many things that popped up in her journey around indecision, um, her future, planning for her future. And it wasn't until I was editing this episode that I realized this entire episode is about planning for the future and how that can be really hard and challenging and be filled with obstacles and so uncertain, which seems obvious. But when you're in the trenches, it doesn't feel so obvious. It can be really frustrating. And I think what I love about Lily's story is she ended up being a trust and estates attorney and helping others plan for their futures beyond our time on this earth. Uh, We talk about what exactly you know, estate planning is and what exactly, you know, she does in her work and why it's so important. And we talk about her her journey to to going into this particular career and doing it um, despite her parents wanting her to do something else. And I think it's a really, really relatable journey. Um, please, please go check out Lily's work. You can find her information in the show notes for this episode. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear this one. I want to mention that the Amplify Her Networking Group is going to be launching on February 15th. So if you're not on the wait list yet, put your name on that wait list. It's in the episode description. So you can go and click on that and get your name added to the list. And um, yeah, just thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I am really, really, truly so grateful. All right, let's not waste any more time. Let's dive into this interview with Lily. Lily, thank you so much for being on the Amplify Her podcast. This has been a long time coming, and I am really so thrilled to have you here today. So thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It means a lot to that you have this space and that you invite persons such as myself to participate. And I want to thank you for allowing me to be here. 
Oh, I appreciate that. Well, we met through Kitty Gonzalez, yeah. who's a past guest of the show. And I know you had been networking networking with her for a while. And I pretty much always tell people within my networks, I really want to meet more women uh, to speak to on my show. And I want to interview people from different industries. And you do estate planning, which uh, I know is very in-depth topic (laughs) and there's lots to talk about around estate planning Um, and you are an attorney. I really can't wait to dive into your story and what you do and and how you got there. Um, And my first question for you is, did you always know you wanted to be an attorney? No, (laughs) I had no idea. Although when you ask my friends to them, it's the perfect profession for me. You know how sometimes people see things in you that you don't necessarily see in yourself. This is one of those situations. My parents always encouraged me to participate in the sciences, nurse, doctor, pharmacist, whatever it is, they felt like it needed to be science-based because understandably from a fearful place, they felt like science would at least guarantee their child a job. Mm. And they didn't understand the concept of all these various different careers that exist out there. It was like, no, you become a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist. So when I went to undergrad, it was biology focused. And I was trying to be the good daughter who's following the good rules and choosing the good major so she can get the good job. And it wasn't very long when I realized this wasn't going to be a good fit. Uh, But because I had been groomed to head in the direction, I had absolutely positively no idea of my skills, what else I could do, what major I could try, what job industry I should look towards. I just felt like, I stopped going down the guided path and then I didn't know where to go. And eventually I said, well, let me try law school. I might be good at it. Mm. That was the extent of my analysis. (laughs) I didn't know any attorneys. I didn't speak to my parents about it beforehand. I just said, let me try it out. And that was a big pivot for me because that was my first time kind of going against what was expected of me. Right, right. Well, did you grow up in an environment that was a strict environment? Like where where did you grow up and, and what was your upbringing like? Yes, it was strict. So both of my parents are from Nigeria. Oh, wow. And they okay. came to the States pretty later on in age to go to, to get master's degrees and things of that nature. So they already came to the country with this set idea of what they wanted their children to be like, especially since they felt like they were making sacrifices in yeah. order to give us a better life. So there's this energy of, I'm doing this for you, or I'm giving you more than what I had, which is a good feeling, but sometimes it creates this pressure of, I need to be like the magical daughter to make you, to make you feel like your sacrifice was worth it. So you did have that subtle and sometimes not so subtle energy that was (laughs) in the home and they were strict. So it was very, your job is to go to school and come back and do your homework and do chores around the house. So I always tell people from 
big stretch of my adolescence, I was merely a professional student. I didn't have anything else going on. So you have a being raised in America, but in a Nigerian household in America. Yeah. So I had dual experience of being raised by Nigerian parents, but it's happening in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. That's where I consider home because when my parents moved to the States, they jumped around a bit, but we all eventually settled in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. So I, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I have, um, I have a somewhat similar experience. So my dad is from India and okay. so he immigrated here, um, and met my mom who's from Chicago, but I, um, I grew up in a, in primarily in a household with her, but when I would go to my dad's house, it was a very Indian household hmm. in America. <laughs> and so it was a very, <laughs> You know, and I think that's such a beautiful experience for, you know, from an immigrant family, you know, to have and preserve their culture. And I know that's incredibly important um, within those families. And yet I also know when you're being raised in a home that encapsulates a, a culture from another country, it is so natural for you to expose yourself to the culture of the country that you live in and to be in Providence, Rhode Island, you know, what were some of those inklings that you found outside of your home, outside of being a professional student, like you said, what did you start to go explore? I started to explore track and field mainly because my other friends were doing it. And I, you know, at that age, you well, not, I, I won't generalize, but for me at that age, I wanted to be around my friends. I wanted to be with my family, but I wanted to be more with my friends so that I could you know, develop into my own individual person. So there's track and field and there's acting classes. I can't even tell you, Christine, what I was doing there, how I got there, how I was found, what was going on, what were the plays we were working on. But what it felt like was a really unique new family that was completely different from the family that I was being within where I was being raised. And we got to be creative because remember up until that point, you have strict Nigerian parents who are grooming you to be a professional student who will go into medicine, not a ton of creativity going on, at least at first glance. So being able to participate in this drama class that wasn't even sanctioned by the school. So again, I don't even know how I found this (sighs) off-site, this off-campus acting class, but it was very fun because it allowed me to be creative. So I did get to sneak that in there with a lot of begging and pleading to my parents with the understanding that school was paramount. So if anything was affecting my grades negatively, it would be out the window before a blink of an eye. Yeah. I think that um, it is so interesting, the internal pressure that we can take on um, that would be assumed as a, you know, I think these mechanisms of like, okay, school is most important. This is what you're going to focus on a very strict environment. There's an assumption that you will, that's how your voice will naturally be seen. And that's how you will find your voice is through these things. But usually that is not the way that young folks find their voices. And it sounds like you really connected with an outlet 
to be a little more aligned with yourself in this particular way. And 100% our parents are doing their best and the best that they can. I think it is hard to then see like, oh, actually, this is the way that Mm. my child uh, wants to find their voice. So when you went through school and you started to go, you know, into acting classes, did you notice a change within yourself and your behavior in your interests? I noticed that I started to become more aware of how other people lived. Mm. Um, again, when you're living in your own household, you make this, you have this assumption that other persons live the same way until you go to, for instance, acting class or track and field and you, you hear people talk about their home life or you go do your homework at a friend's house and you notice the dynamics between their parents or you go to a friend's house and you notice there's one parent. These are the types of things to which I was exposed and that made me realize, oh, other people are living differently than I am. But I will say there was a common denominator. Most of my friends were also first generation, Mm. whether it was Cambodia or Liberia or Guatemala or Haiti, all of us had that shared shared experience of our parents being immigrants and raising us here in this dual society. But they also had other differences that I didn't share. So I got to get a sneak peek into how other people were living. And some things I thought, okay, that's not great. And then some (laughs) things I felt like, oh, that's really cool. I wish me and my family did that too. And I liked that exposure because you have to eventually learn that everything is not set up the way that it is in your house or in your neighborhood or in your cultural community. Yeah, 100%. I think that those lessons, no matter what sort of environment you grow up in, are so important. And being in a diverse environment is so important. And being around people who are different than you is just so incredibly important in developing your own voice and your own story. So when you got to college, um, you know, you said you were starting to study biology. When did a shift start to take place for you around what you wanted to do in your life? When I got to chemistry and it kicked my butt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I can so relate. Yeah. (laughs) I think you had to start taking chemistry classes somewhere in the sophomore year. And I thought, oh, this is, this is not good. This is not that it's even that it's challenging because I have learned through my life experiences that I'm a person capable of doing hard things and seeing it through. So the challenge in and of itself is not a problem. It is the challenge and knowing that it's also a challenge because this is just not meant for you. Not just because you need to study harder. It's just like, no, (laughs) this is not where you're supposed to be. So that's when the shift started occurring. And I started looking around and trying to get some, honestly, I looked, externally first because I hadn't yet developed my internal voice or maybe there was an internal voice but I had yet to tap into it to actually listen and hear and heed its advice Mm -hmm. so my first thought was I need to talk to everyone in the world to figure out what I need to do because I'm lost here in the cold shivering woods now that I'm slowly realizing that I'm not going to be a biology major and so 
getting input from others and leaning on what they saw in me that I didn't see in myself allowed me to make that transition. But yeah, it started with realizing chemistry did not like me and I did not like chemistry. <laughs> but what an interesting thing to also feel um, that I think is ingrained in us in college is just so much pressure to have mm-hmm. it all figured out and just so much Isn't pressure when you're 20 or 19 or 18 to, I mean, you're literally going into school at 18, 19, and there's so much pressure to have this perfect career path. And I don't, I don't think that's realistic for any part of our lives. I mean, you could literally decide that you didn't want, you don't want to be an attorney anymore, you know, at, at here in the now and at the here and now, and you, have that ability to make those decisions and those changes and that freedom. But in the moment in school, it feels like so much pressure. It is. It is. And I understand why, because we're always in some form or fashion in the pursuit of security. Right. And our parents and our caretakers are trying to push us down a path that they feel like will create security for us. But in that path, there's no conversation about showing grace to yourself. There's no conversation about the power of the pivot. There's no conversation about how there's going to be a time when you're working more and you spend less time with your family or you spend less time, more time with your family and you work more. There's no conversation about the real life that's waiting for you once you cross that graduation stage. And I feel like we do our children a disservice by making it sound like the whole world is a university and all you need to do is get your degree and then everything is okay thereafter. That's absolutely false. Yes, I agree with you. And I'm curious, you know, because you had mentioned you looked for external voices because you hadn't found your internal voice quite yet. So what was your path um, after talking to those external voices? And I would love to know that part first and then and then your journey towards hearing that internal voice and knowing where that compass was going to guide you. Got it. So you're asking the path towards seeking that those external voices or external opinions? So I'm curious what happened after you spoke to all of those people? It was, it boiled down to a pros and cons list mm. of what to do next. <laughs> That's it was very analytical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a list fan. So it turned very analytical and it turned into, okay, if I stick with biology, should I find something science oriented or should I completely scrap that and go in a completely different direction like being a, a an author or studying journalism instead. That's not what I thought of at the time, but I'm trying to think of something wildly different from science. Yeah. And so I put these different careers on a sheet of paper and I did uh, pros and cons. And what I came up with was because I still wanted to do something science related because I, I, one, I didn't want to disappoint my parents too much. And two, I felt like I should use the credit and the knowledge that I had gained up until that point. And so I sought out this health law program at Seton Hall in Newark, New Jersey. At the time they were the top, either in the top 10 or the top five of health law programs. So in my mind, I said, oh, I get to do health 
and not feel like I wasted the first year and a half of my college education or two years. And I get to also try my hand at law. So that was my compromise to meeting my parents' goals and also feeling like I wasn't being forced to be a medical doctor. So after yeah. conversations with people, that's when the idea of health law came into my mind. Otherwise, I, I didn't even know that profession, that discipline existed. So I went gung-ho for the health law program. Aside, hated it. <laughs> but <laughs> I went gung-ho with the health law program. And during that pursuit, I found estate planning and tax planning, which I'm sure we'll get to later. But during the yeah. pursuit of going down the path that I felt like was safe and respectable, I pivoted to the thing that actually spoke to me. So sometimes you have to go down the wrong path to get to the right path, which doesn't really make it a wrong path. It just makes it, you know, you had to go down this one path so you can get to a better fit. Yeah. Of a, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I I think just now I'm figuring out my my path and I've gone through so many of them. And I I think you don't know until you you do. You yeah. don't know until you act, until you take an action in the right direction. But I also uh I think the internal dialogue or the pressure to move in a direction that would um that would please others or our parents is very very hard to break is very yes. hard to let go of um it's very hard to not hold that with us as we move along in our journeys of life right when you went into uh, I know you mentioned you you didn't enjoy health law, <laughs> then you found estate planning. <laughs> when you started to, you know, dabble in estate planning and really kind of understand that this was the path, did you feel like you were breaking away from that pressure or did you feel like you weren't pleasing others or or is that still a pressure that you have in your life? I still, I still felt like I wasn't pleasing others. I don't have that feeling now, but at that time, even the, the, to be honest with you, the whole law school experience, I felt like I wasn't pleasing my parents because my parents never understood why I transitioned from medicine to law. Mm. So my entire, even when I made the transition, I got accepted to law school. I, I, I matriculated and I started taking classes. I never felt their support. And it wasn't until I graduated that I realized it really was fear-based. My mother, being a Nigerian woman, thought of attorneys as a white male-dominated field. Mm. And her fear for her daughter was, if my daughter becomes an attorney, no one will hire her. So that's, I didn't realize that until the end, during law school, I felt like maybe she doesn't think that I'm good enough, or maybe she doesn't right. think that I'm smart enough. But the truth was she believed in me as an individual, but she just was fearful of the institution that I was entering and thought that the institution wouldn't see me and wouldn't treat me well. And that's when I realized sometimes people are, they're giving you advice, not based on who you are, but based on their fears and based on who they are. Yeah. And so I learned that lesson 
it was like a bright supreme aha moment when I really when she was able to articulate to me what her fears were. So during my entire law school career, I still felt like I was disappointing my parents. And once I realized why that feeling was happening, I was able to finally let that go and say this, I'm in it. Like I feel connected to this thing called law yeah. more so than I did to this thing called medicine. And I'm here and eventually, hopefully, maybe they'll catch up and give me their support. And eventually they did. But if I was waiting for that, then it would have been a, a much more challenging process. Right. I think that um, that is such a beautiful container, though, of of parenthood and such a beautiful example of, you know, we're going to naturally bring the trauma that we hold or the fear that we hold into various aspects of protecting our children and maybe unknowingly impact them in a way that might not be as positive as we had intended. And I think what a beautiful testament to how much your mom loves you, uh, but may not have been able to express those fears directly to you uh, in in a way that she would have hoped and in a way that would have felt more supportive for you. Um, yes. But what a great moment that you can now reflect upon that love and just like see, oh, that's what was at the root cause of a lot of this. Yes. <laughs> I yeah. agree. I feel like when you have parents who don't quite articulate their feelings, you develop this skill eventually of being able to see behind the curtain and not take the first reaction as the real reaction yeah. and try to peel back the layers and say, well, where is this actually coming from? Because otherwise you, you internalize all of it and you take it personally. Yes, absolutely. Well, I would love to get into your career and how you got into estate planning, because I love hearing your journey of how you chose this. I think a lot of people can 100% relate to your background and your journey to estate planning. So when you chose to go the route of estate planning, what was appealing um, about this particular path for you? I felt like estate planning was very powerful and that I also tip my hat off to my uh, law school professor. She made it feel so empowering that with the right paperwork and leaning into the right laws, I can take care of myself. I can take care of my family. I can take care of family members whom I haven't even met yet. And to me, I'm looking around the classroom like, is anybody else feeling tingly right now? Because this is <laughs> amazing. This to me is way more interesting than criminal law and torts and con law. I, with the with the help of my attorney, can put my desires, my wishes for my family in writing and have it be effectuated. And that to me felt very empowering. That to me felt like I am acutely impacting people's lives right now. Not theoretically, not, well, it depends upon what the judge or the jurisdiction says, I can really make a difference now. And that to me felt very empowering. So can you detail what exactly is a state law for those who may not know? Sure. Great question. So I always tell persons estate planning is really just the orderly distribution of your assets. 
Do not get caught up in the value of your assets. That's the biggest hurdle. The way we talk about estate planning, at least here in the West, is you have to be wealthy. You have to have multiple homes and cars. You have to make a million dollars a year. And when people internalize that definition, they discount themselves and say, oh, that's not me. I don't have enough. I don't earn enough. I don't do enough. I'm, I'm not enough to engage in estate planning, so I don't have to even bother with it. But I always tell people when we're talking about the orderly distribution of your assets, it's just a matter of taking inventory and saying, do I have assets I care about? Mm -hmm. Do I have people I care about? Okay. And do I want to put instructions around those two things? Right. If the answer is yes, then you are you are a candidate for estate planning. I don't care if you're leaving behind a, a studio apartment. I don't care if you're leaving behind a Toyota Corolla. I don't care if you're leaving behind $1,500 in your checking account or your bakery business. Whatever it is, you have a right to dictate what happens to it and what happens to your loved ones, especially if you have minor children. So orderly distribution of your assets if you have people and assets you care about, that's estate planning. Okay, so good to know. When yeah. you first, <laughs> thank you. Um, when you first started getting into this field, and you, uh, you know, went through the process of becoming an attorney, and you started practicing, what did that look like for you? Like where, because you have your your own practice now, yes. and I'm curious how that evolved. Did you always have your own practice? I didn't. I started out in the financial services field. So this is another tidbit. When you're in law school, they the bee's knees of, of being an attorney is either working in a firm, a law firm, or working in a government agency. But I went to a financial services firm. So I did something very different. I didn't know anyone else who was doing it. And for a while, I did not enjoy my first five years because I didn't feel like I was a real lawyer. I wasn't in a law firm. I wasn't working at the governor's office or the attorney general's office. And there were certain elements of what I was doing where I wasn't really allowed to practice law. I was allowed to be a legal consultant. And so because it didn't fit the script, I beat myself up. I was way too hard on myself and I made myself feel like I wasn't a real attorney. So I had that baggage for the first five years of my career. And I eventually broke out of it and said, I get to travel for work. I give presentations. So I'm developing my public speaking skills. I get to write. I'm not the young associate that you throw in the background and say, do all of the grunt work that none of the partners want to do. <laughs> I really get to build a name for myself and learn how to read people and talk to clients and learn what's important to them because your clients tell you something and you should take it into consideration, but you should also pay attention to what they're not telling you. And yeah. I got to develop those skills in the financial services field and then also learn about insurance and investments. So once I got rid of that whole, oh, you're not a real attorney because you're not at a law firm billing $1,000 an hour, I really got to tap into all the benefits that having a non-traditional legal position 
provided. So I would say to anyone listening, even if your job doesn't quote fit the script, there's something in that position that will help you in your next position right. and really try to avoid the spirit of comparison because it is a beast and it will take you down a dark and ugly road that serves you absolutely no good. And so I finally got away from the spirit of comparison, finally saw the beauty that was in my career. And the reason I pivoted to starting my own law firm in 2020 was because I had a vision of the things that I wanted to do and it wasn't happening in my setting. And my initial reaction was, oh, go look for another job in the company that wasn't working out. Go look for another job outside of the company that also wasn't working out mm -hmm. until finally I got to a point where I realized, you know, this thing that you're looking for, you probably have to create it. Mm -hmm. It's not on indeed.com or lawfirmjobs.com. You probably have to go and create it. And that started the little mustard seed of how do I create this feeling and this path that I'm trying to experience. And when the pandemic hit, like the height of the pandemic, where um, in March, 2020, yeah. you could hear a pin drop in Brooklyn. Like, yeah. You didn't even see pigeons. It's like the pigeons got the word on the pandemic too. Yeah. It was wild. And being forced to sit still forced me to have a reckoning with what wasn't working in my career anymore. And it forced me to take a chance on myself because oh, wow. if anything, it was just like, yo, none of this stuff is predictable. Go after what you want. Yeah. Well, how did, how did you do that? And how did it feel to do that? <laughs> it was a lot of hand wringing <laughs> back to the pros and cons list. Um, and it was also speaking to other persons who were solo or they started their own firm or even they started their own business and asking them, how did you transition? What were the things you would do differently if you could go back to that season where you were transitioning from employee to small business owner? It was looking at my savings account and saying, if I got no clients, for six months or 12 months, would I still be okay? And then it was, how do I tell my parents? <laughs> These parents, they really do have a hold on you. How do I tell <laughs> my parents that I'm quitting my job that on paper was amazing and I'm going to risk the financial security and create my own thing from scratch by myself. And so once I had the conversations with other people who had started their own business, once I did the math and realized that um, it could be done financially, and then once I told my parents and they surprisingly were supportive instantaneously. Wow. I don't know if they've like started doing yoga or something, but <laughs> there was absolutely no pushback when I told them I was starting my own law firm. And those three points, those boxes being checked, I said, let's go try. If I fail, yeah. I can say that I failed well. I mean, I love this so much. You definitely feel like yeah. the kind of person that um, really 
likes to do their research and consult with their community (laughs) before you take action, which I think is a smart way to do something that feels fearful. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there were those moments of fear that came along with all of this. Lots of fear, lots of fear. You all of a sudden start hearing the horror stories of the other people who quit their job and then they didn't do it so well and they went back to doing their job, which I hate that narrative because even if you leave your corporate job or whatever job as an employee to strike out on your own, needing to go back to the corporate world, I don't think is a failure. Me either. And I was hearing those stories and eventually I was just just like, why is that a failure? This person took a chance on themselves. It didn't work out the way they wanted. They're going back to regroup and they can go back out again with more data and more information. That's not a failure. Once I reworked my brain and said, that's not a failure. I said, yeah, I can always, God willing, knock on wood, go back to the corporate life. And that's not a failure. It's not yeah. a failure. No, I 100% agree with you. Yeah. yeah. So when you started to build your own firm, what did your first clients look like? What were you doing with them? How, how were those early days? Those early days were rough because I was building the law firm on the side while I still had my main job. So that's one, I had two jobs. And two, I was finishing up my master's in tax law at Georgetown Law School. Wow. So, and it was a pandemic. I don't know how I left 2020 with, with the hair on my head, but we thank God for that because yeah. the amount of stress was nuts. So, but I, I wanted to see if I could get, get clients, but I couldn't advertise myself because I'm still an employee. So I was getting my clients by reaching out to financial advisors who were not connected to my main employer and saying, this is what I'm trying to build. Um, If you feel like you can refer clients to me, I would really appreciate it because then I don't get my feet wet on whether or not this is a sustainable idea. And so many people were like, oh my God, that's great. I'm happy for you. I have someone for you. So the whole business was word of mouth and it's still word of mouth. It's not like my face is on a billboard or my firm is in a commercial. It's still other professionals sending their clients to me, which I think it makes me feel so humble anytime someone calls, emails, text messages and says, I have someone for you because that means you trust me. Yeah. And that's a big deal for me. So it started out with telling people on the side, this is what I'm doing, send people my way. And they were happy to. And so I, I started to build the firm on the side while juggling the master's program and juggling the main, uh, the main job that I had. Well, it really shows the testament and power of networking and community and getting to, I mean, that's how we met is through networking, Mm -hmm. but just building a community around you and being very intentional about it and being very mindful and the power of asking. It can be fearful to put yourself out there and ask for what you need and what you desire, but it seems like you definitely have a practice in your life of coming to a point where you're like, okay, I understand. I want to ask for something. How do I now narrow down and understand what my next 
ask is. Yes, yes. Which I think is beautiful. Two things that's I absolutely agree with you. Two things happened during that pandemic, or maybe one happened before. I spoke to a woman who was a principal of a middle slash high school in Brooklyn. And we spoke for maybe an hour and a half. And one of the things she told me was, you have to have the audacity to go after your dreams. Mm. Because there's a lot of audacious people out here doing doing nonsense, absolute nonsense. (laughs) So you have to be audacious about the thing that you're passionate about. So I, I had that idea in the back of my head before the pandemic came. And then when the pandemic hit, um, Someone told me that you don't know that people are looking for you. You don't know people are looking for your skill. They're looking for your personality. They're looking for the way that you write articles. And not just me, Lily and Kinshore. You as well, Christina. Someone is looking for you. They're looking for your personality. They're looking for the way you show up. They're looking for the way you organize meetings. They're looking for your critical thinking. They're looking for the way you do your makeup. Someone is out there who's looking for you and you have to put yourself out there so that you can be found. And those two lessons kept playing in the back of my mind when I was out here trying to make it happen. Oh my gosh. I want that like in a loop as my like <laughs> alarm in the morning. Like when I wake up. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. I think that advice is, and that, what you just said is so powerful. And if more people realized that Mm -hmm. there would be a lot more people who were tapping into creativity, putting themselves out there and and making the ask. Oh, I I literally have chills after you said that because (laughs) I really do feel like that moment right there is so powerful. Mm -hmm. People are looking for you. You don't know it people are looking for you and you're more powerful than you think. That was yeah. the other thing I learned. Um, a lot of times, sometimes maliciously, but a lot of times accidentally, as we're growing up, we are cut off from our power. Yes. Someone tells you that's not a good thing or someone minimizes it or something happens where you just start to become disconnected from your own power. And it's like an outlet that's there, but it can't do anything unless you plug into it. Yeah. So when you walked up to the outlet and you plug in, that's when you can get connected. I think people are thinking, I need to go and get my power. Someone needs to come in and make me powerful. No, you are powerful and you need to be connected to your own power. And that sometimes, you know, means that you have to get rid of people. You have to get rid of limiting ideas. You have to talk to your therapist. You have to stop talking to friends and family members who skew more negatively than positively. So I'm not saying it's an easy process, but I'm saying that the power that you're looking for is right under your nose, right under your nose. I mean, look at what happened with your career. You plugged in, you know, you, you plugged in and you found your power and you, you are now helping others set themselves up for a powerful future and a legacy. And I think that is so, so important. And I think what I'm taking from our conversation so, so much is 
really finding your voice and your power and, and your powerful story takes time. And it, yes. it's not yes. going to be overnight. It's not going yes. to be maybe with certainty in every decision that you make. And right. even in your evolution with your current practice, I am sure it's going to take time to continue to grow and figure out the next stage. What is something that you wish people knew about estate planning and your services that is just so vital for, for people's lives that, that you wish they, they had in their arsenal? Thank you. Um, it, that it doesn't have to be complex. A lot of times people, my clients will comment after the process and they'll say, oh, that was it? Because they came into this meeting feeling like they had to have all of their assets organized on some 30 page Excel sheet. You don't. They thought they had to have everything already figured out. They don't. They felt like they had to have all these family dynamics figured out. They don't. And they also felt like it was going to be too expensive. And it doesn't. It doesn't have to be expensive. So if I can leave you with understanding that you don't have to have it figured out, you don't need a list of your assets already put together on an Excel sheet. <laughs> and depending upon what you need, it's not an it's not an expensive process, then I'd leave you with that so that you can get over that fear of talking yourself out of planning because you think that you need to do everything before you meet me. My job is to help you and coach you through it. If you already had it figured out before you came to me, then you may not you, you may not need all of my services. So I don't want you to feel like it needs to be figured out before you go to your estate planning attorney. Yeah, that's so lovely to hear because it makes things a little more comfortable when having a conversation that might be uncomfortable. Yes. And I, yeah. Yes. And I think and understand for, that yeah. we are having a people don't like to talk about it because there is an element of talking about a time when you're not going to be here. Right. No one wants to feel the emotions that come up around that. So I try to reposition the conversation, of course, taking into consideration that you not being here is part of the plan. But I want you to feel like this is more of your opportunity to tell the story about your life. Mm. Tapping into our conversation just now about how powerful you are. You've built a life. It's beautiful. People love you. People rely on you. You have, a, you have assets. You should be able to tell a story around that. This is like your last love letter to your family. Don't look at it as, oh my God, uh, I, I'm not going to be here. And then you start freaking out. I have a minor child. Who's going to take care of this? And that's what scares people. But I want you to think about it as your opportunity to tell your story. Oh, I love that so much. I think that's such a beautiful way for us to end um, because I think it's just such a, an incredible um, message for folks out there in the world. I do have one more question for you yeah, before absolutely. we end. And that's, um, you know, what do you, do you see more young women planning in this way? Or are you hoping that more women would come to you and plan for their futures in this way. Because from what I have seen, a lot of estate planning um, has been more dominated by men taking the yeah. lead in that er area. So what is your desire around more women planning for their futures in this way? That is a great question. I'm going to go out on a limb and say 65 to 70% of my clients are women. 
They are ranging between the ages of 35 and 75, but most of them are between 35 and 55. And the reason estate planning has skewed towards women is a couple of things. One, we're working outside of the home more and we're earning as much, if not more so than our counterparts, meaning our partners, our significant others. And so we're aware of the story that we've been building and creating, and we're aware that we need to put instructions around it. So that's number one. Number two, I am an overly <laughs> credentialed individual and other women see that and they say, great, I've been meaning to work with the woman and I've been looking for someone with your credentials. So women will gravitate towards me. And if there's and if they want to, they'll bring their partner as well. So we're we're working outside of the homes. We're earning. A lot of us are property owners before we even get married or even have children. So we are aware of needing to protect that particular asset. And then women, in my experience, like working with other women. So when they see me, even if they weren't thinking about planning, now they are because they thought that planning needed to be done in this um, really stiff and stodgy way with a man. And then they see me and they're like, oh, oh my God, I didn't know that you existed. Let's have a conversation. <laughs> Yes. Oh, I love that so much. Well, if people want to have a conversation with you, where can they find you? Absolutely. Go to the website, Lily. I was going to say, what's, it? what's my website again? Lily <laughs> we'll link it. We'll link it. <laughs> we'll link it. We'll link it. It's my first name, my last name.com, lilyandkendra.com. I also put out a lot of educational videos that you can find on LinkedIn under my name or Instagram under my name. So even if you want to just get some more education on the type of work we do. You can go to those social platforms, take a look, see if you're inspired, and then head over to the website to either email us or book a consultation. Beautiful. Thank you, Lily. I am yeah. so grateful we had this conversation today. And I just so appreciate your time and what you're doing in this world and sharing your story with me and my listeners. And, um, if you're listening to this, please never forget that your voice matters and your story matters. Yes. So thank you, Lily, so much. Thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in. We appreciate you being here. Yes, definitely. We'll see you on the next episode of the Amplify Her podcast. Hey there, my name is Meli Ramirez and I'm the host of Chingona's Only Club, a podcast for women of all backgrounds where we discuss our struggles with gender norms, societal roles, and social issues. If you want to learn more and connect with strong and equally resilient women, I invite you to listen in every Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Let's empower one another through our powerful storytelling. Adios! We are all works in progress. What if we took that a step further, pausing for a moment to ask ourselves, what else is possible? What if you were to just be with the question so that you can then choose something different for your life, not having to seek out any answer? So join me, Carmen Shields, on the Discovering Amazing Possibilities podcast every other Wednesday. Get curious about your life. What amazing possibilities have you not considered in your life today?
The Amplify Her podcast is a part of the Amplify Her Media Network. You can check out more shows on the Amplify Her Media Network over on Instagram at Amplify Her Media.